You know, I, I sat there and thought, man, what do I say after being out of the pulpit for five weeks? You know, I thought of clever things like, hi, my name's Dan Deckard. Uh, contrary to popular belief, I still go here. Um, but I, I just want to say it's good to be back. Um, for those who might be new, um, the elders of the church gave me uh, five weeks to, to do a sabbatical, which is a time of rest. And uh, I was asked if I'd just share a, a, a word about what happened during that sabbatical. And um, for the first nine days, uh, my family and I and my extended family and extended, extended family went up and camped for nine days in the dirt in my favorite place in the entire world. It's not my wife's favorite place, but it's my favorite place. And uh, just spent time with family and then I uh, came back here and I uh, set up a little office in, my, in, my, uh, in our guest bedroom uh, because this was kind of a working sabbatical for me. I had a project, an educational project that I needed to make a lot of headway on and, and I was able to do that. And then uh, the most important thing for me though, was um, being able to uh, breathe. Um, ministry sometimes is like a, like, a, um, like a marathon. And to be able to stop and be still before the Lord and, and to, uh, to seek his heart and be reminded um, why um, I do what I do and how good he is has just been really filling for me. And so my wife, oddly enough, asked me last night, she says, are you ready to go back? And I said, oh, I don't think anything can keep me away. I'm just ready to come back, um, especially with a good sense of humor that old Parkway people have. Uh, not only joking with me, but I think Dan told you that, uh, that he got, well, he, he vacated his office for the sake of our Spanish ministry. And some, uh, some Yahoo decided to take his nameplate and put it on the door of the stall in the bathroom. It's like, if you want to find Dan Overby's office, you go in the men's room, first door on the left, that's Dan Overby. So anyway, it's just, I, I love this church family, and it's really good to be back. And I'm very thankful for the brothers who, who um, preached the word and shared their lives um, with us um, over the past um, five weeks. So it's good to be back. And um, I wanted to say one more thing. Dan said that uh, I'd say a word about uh, a small group study that we're going to be doing, and and. Um, we're going to have our small groups go through a, a small but powerful little book called The Prodigal God. Now, um, I have a lot of favorite authors, but I think one of my most recent favorite authors is, without a question, a guy by the name of Timothy Keller, um, who does amazing work in, in New York. And um, I read this book, and at first I thought, hey, you know, people have recommended it to me, and I didn't have that high of expectation, but it was like a breath of fresh air to my soul. And what's wonderful about it is it's short, it's simple, but it, get, it just once again reveals the amazing heart of God. And, um, and so we're going to have our small group ministries uh, go through this particular book. Um, I actually handed it to my father, who's read lots of books too, and, and I said, hey, how did you like it? And he actually said, and I hope this doesn't oversell the book, but he actually said, Danny, you know, of all the books I've read, there's three that stand out um, above all else, uh, Desiring God by John Piper, uh, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. So um, if you're not in a small group, I just want to encourage you to find one, and if you can't be in a small group, then you could read it as a family, as a couple. You could find a friend and do it with at Starbucks once a week. But um, I really believe that, one, it will reintroduce us to the heart of God. I also believe that it will deal with some of the sinful fractures that keep the family from being one, um, that plagues every church in America. And then finally, it's a, this is a great tool to actually hand to a neighbor and say, hey, if you want to know what the gospel is about, this is it. It's short, it's an easy read, but it's powerful and potent. So um, that's just an invitation. That's where we're going to be going. I'm excited. There's more to say, 
but, um, but we'll get there in, a, in the weeks ahead. So again, I hope that you will take the opportunity. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon.com, so order yourself a copy or four or five copies. Let me invite you um, on this first Sunday of September to turn uh, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Just going to look at one verse, 12 verse 1. Um, I will have it on the screen behind me for those of you who didn't bring your Bibles. Uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 1. And as you're turning, let me just offer up once again another prayer. Father, we we want to pause and be still and And be reminded that unless your spirit takes these words on this page and these words spoken through my lips and ignite them in our hearts, that it's really not going to do any good. And so we just pause to say, please do what only you can do, what only your spirit can do, what only your grace can do. And that is um, speak to us, not just in a way that, that is understood with the cortex of our mind, but also with this amazing thing called the affection of the heart and that you would um, allow us to see more clearly your wonders, and that out of that, that we would want and desire to live more fully for you as your your children, as the followers of of Jesus Christ. So will you just empower this moment, empower your word, as only you can do, in Christ's name, amen. I don't know how you feel about September, but it always feels to me like a kind of a a new beginning. I know that school started in the middle of August, which I think, by the way, is a travesty. I mean, I mean, who does that kind of stuff? Starts, my kids are like, really? We have to go back to school in the middle of August? Well, obviously, school did start. But this always kind of feels like September feels like the real start of the school year. And uh, so I kind of wanted to, and I think many of you feel that way too. Kids go back to school, new classrooms, new teachers. We have a kid in a high school, a kid in middle school, and a, a little caboose tearing up kindergarten at K.I. Jones. So all over the place. It's all new for us. And, uh, and I know that some of you feel like this is kind of new beginning too. There's two beginnings of the year. There's January 1st and then there's when school starts. So I kind of wanted to take this opportunity to come back to some just what we might think of as basic Christianity in hopes that it will just kind of launch, launch our year. Uh, in particular, in terms of basic Christianity, what I want to talk about this week and next week in preparation for this new school year is life as worship. Life as worship. Now, when we hear the word worship, oftentimes we associate it with singing and praying and and music and guitars and sermons and so forth, all of which is a part of worship and has been a part of worship for thousands of years. It's prescribed, and the people of God have been doing it since the beginning of time. But what I want to talk about this week and next week is life as a whole as worship. And there's two texts in particular that I want to look at. This week is uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and next week, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And they're connected with words like sacrifice and offering, that is, worship. This week is is Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which I want to admit at the beginning is a a well-worn text. That is, it's preached on all the time. Uh, if, you're, if you're a person who's been in church for any number of years, you probably have the gold rub off, rubbed off the edge of the page on this particular uh, uh, chapter of your Bible, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Maybe it's even highlighted or underlined, uh, which makes it a bit of a challenge for me uh, because the danger of a well-worn text is it can bounce off your life like a, like a bug off a windshield because you think you know it and you, we easily become numbed by familiarity and then it doesn't get traction in our life. Uh, so that's a challenge. How do you present it in a way that gains traction? Um, but on the other side, the, the positive side, it's a well-worn text for a reason. 
Because it says so much in just a few words. In fact, the concept of what Romans 12.1 presents, the concept of how to live the Christian Christian life, has been um, a turning point for me. And I hope to show you why and how through this verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Um, One more thing needs to be said. This uh, also shows you why it's well-worn. It is the pivotal verse that connects the two great parts of Paul's letter to the Romans. First 11 chapters, he expounds on the work of grace through Christ, that is the gospel. And beginning in chapter 12, he uh, lays out the ethical outworkings of the gospel, the application of it. And the verse that ties these two great sections together is this verse right here. It brings them both together in a unique way. Now I have uh, it in two translations here, and you'll see why in a, in a couple of moments. But this is what Paul wrote at the beginning of his application section and the closing of his great exposition of the gospel. He says, Yes, we. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That verse can be broken into two parts. The first part lays out the basis or the foundation of the Christian life, and the second part um, explains the sacrificial nature of the Christian life. The second part is the sacrificial nature of the Christian life. Those are the two parts, and I kind of want to start with part number two and then back up to part number one. Uh, The part number two, namely that the Christian life, according to Paul here, is viewed as as sacrificial in nature. It It is worship. That's here presented in the words, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's worship, sacrifice. Now, we're so used to this, and we live in a modern time in which people don't take animals to worship, that the graphic nature of this verse is easily lost. Put yourself back in in the fabric of of ancient time. Uh, When you went to worship, you'd take an animal with you. You know, and, and that animal was for one purpose, and that was to, to have a, a priest slay it on an altar and offer it to the Lord. You know, so in their time, when they'd go off to worship, you know, you see Bob taking his, his sheep and, and, and Bill taking his, his lamb and someone else taking birds, and, hey, Bob, how are you doing? Hey, Bill, and they're taking their animals to worship to be slaughtered. And that's, when they would have read this, that's what would have come to mind, is a graphic sacrifice. Only what would have surprised them and would have been striking to the readers of this is this is a living sacrifice, as many have noted. Not a dead one, but a living one. Which tells us, in short, that the entirety of the Christian life lived is to be offered in sacrifice and worship to the Lord. The entirety of it. Now that breaks down, I think, at least into three things as to what that means. I already alluded to the first one, namely that it's life in its entirety. Um, Again, taking your mind back to the ancients. When you take an animal to sacrifice, you take it to sacrifice the entire animal, not just a leg or a kidney or a jawbone or an ear. But no, you offer the entire life of the animal on the altar. And the fact that it's a living sacrifice basically means that everything in the Christian life, from the moment that God awoke, uh, awakened you spiritually, your new birth, to the last breath, and everything in between is to be lived in such a way that it's worship, offered 
in honor of and given to the glory of God. Everything. Nothing's to be excluded. Christianity, according to Paul, is not a part-time thing. It's not something you do certain hours of the week and you let go of other hours of the week. It's 24-7, constantly everything, a living sacrifice, the entirety of one's life. Um, That, by the way, I think has some profound implications. It completely shatters that distinction that a lot of people make, which is extremely unhealthy for the church, between what is sacred and what is secular. So that what Dan does on Sunday morning, that's sacred, but I work in a pharmacy, so that's secular. For the Christian, all of life is sacred according to this. Living sacrifice. There is no distinction any longer. What you do on Monday through Friday or whenever you work and when you're at home, you're on vacation, it's all to be lived as sacred worship to God, as sacrifice to God. Which means that the work of a fireman, the work of a public school teacher, is every bit as sacred as the work of a pastor or missionary, provided it's offered in worship to God. See, it's all sacred. And if every Christian actually had that mindset and stopped making that distinction to realize when I go and I I work on cars for a living and I, I take a wrench, that that is offered as sacred worship to God. That's what he's called me to do, and it's sacred. It would change things if everybody actually took that mental approach, which Paul here tells us we're to have. That we are to be... The entire life offered up to the Lord. That's one thing it means, life in its entirety. The second thing I think that it means is it means that that our will is surrendered to the will of another, namely the will of God. You offer a sacrifice, it's no longer yours. It's wholly and completely offered up and given to God to do with as he wills. That means a part of the Christian life and living out the Christian life is to surrender the right of self-determination. That I'm going to live life the way I want to live it. That's not what a sacrifice is. It is a surrender of one's will to the will of God, Um, his purpose for your life, how he desires and has designed you to live. And that's part of being a sacrifice is this thing called glad and willing obedience to him. And I think the perfect example of this was the prime example is Jesus himself, who on the night he was betrayed, you know, he, he sweat drops of blood as he was praying and said, Father, if it be possible that this cup pass from me, never, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And the Son of God himself surrenders his will to the will of his Father, and then the next day goes to the cross. That's the prime example of what it means to surrender one's will to the will of another and us surrendering our will to God as a sacrifice. So it's life in its entirety. It is... Um, It includes the surrender of one's will. But then there's a third one I think is extremely important, and that is the motive. And that is what is talked about here, I believe, is this is an offering of love, a sacrifice of love. Now, that's not explicit here, but it's definitely deduced from the context. Because we do not offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to gain something that we don't already have. In other words, we don't offer our bodies as a living sacrifice as as a way of avoiding hell and gaining heaven. That we don't offer our bodies as living sacrifices or our lives as living sacrifices to pay some kind of a debt or atone for some kind of sin. There's only one sacrifice that could do all of that, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus. And if the sacrifice of Jesus is the only one that could do that, pay the debt, offer forgiveness, and so forth then the sacrifice he's calling us to here must be a sacrifice of love because we love God. Because we love him. 
Fact of the matter is you look around and people are willing to sacrifice for what they love. True, all the way around. You sacrifice your children because you sacrifice your children. Sacrifice for your children. Some of you might feel like sacrificing your children, but sacrifice for your children because you love them. You know, I, I read this. There's a story that happened last year. It was a tragedy. It was uh, September 6th or 7th. Um, a man in, in Seattle was, uh, uh, who's actually from Canada, him and his pregnant wife were driving along. And um, he, I think he's 33. She was 31. She's pregnant. She's in the passenger seat. He's in the driver's seat. And uh, I read the story, and then I saw the interview and just made me cry. And, um, and they're driving along, again, from Canada down into Washington. And what they don't know is that uh, there's a car coming at them, a, a blazer, with some young people in it who had just been doing drugs, cocaine, and the driver, a girl, um, was trying to take off her sweater while she was somewhat high, and um, the blazer drifted into the lane of this, this young man and his pregnant wife. And the article went on to say in the moments that he had, the, 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 the blazer was going to hit this small car inevitably. There's no way of, of avoiding it. That the man jerked the wheel in such a way that the, the blazer hit him. And killed him instantly and then saved his wife and his unborn child. And it's, you know, the, the, I forget exactly what the label of the, the news um, article was, but it's just like basically man saves his, um, his wife and unborn child by sacrificing himself. Why? Because he loves them. The nature of the sacrifice that pleases God is a, is a sacrifice that comes because we, because we love him. We love him. He means that much to us. Now, if I was to stop my message right here, you might for a moment be inspired to go out and offer your body as a living sacrifice. But I think that if I stop the message right here, that you would leave empty. And I would have failed to preach the gospel. And if this was all you had, inevitably, your strength and power to offer your body as a living sacrifice would dry up like a flower in the, in the desert. I mean, don't Muslims teach also that one is to offer their life as the ultimate sacrifice to Allah? And yet there's no good news in that. I would not be giving you the gospel if that's where we left it. Which brings us to the first part of the verse. If the second part of the verse tells us what the Christian life is to look like, namely, it's sacrificial in nature, all of life in its entirety, out of love for God, you know, surrendering our will to the will of the one we love, then the first part of the verse lays out the only thing that makes that possible, the only thing. How is it that one can actually live out the second part of the verse? How do we present our bodies as living sacrifices in everything that we do unto God? I think there's only one way, and that is that we base our living sacrifice squarely, consistently, and perpetually on the foundation of the mercy of God. Now, here is the reason that I like the NIV a little bit better than the ESV. Namely, it says, in view of God's mercy. How do you present your body as a living sacrifice? Well, you do so in view of God's mercy. That's a, I like the view because it has to do with beholding or seeing or, or maintaining something in your line of sight. In view of God's mercy, present 
your bodies as living sacrifices. That God's mercy or mercies of God, that is his way of giving a title or a summation of everything he talked about in the first 11 chapters about the amazing salvation that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's in view of everything that he's done that we're able to then respond in offering our bodies in worship to God each and every day and 24-7. In view of his mercy. Now, what, is it, what does that mean? In view of his mercy. And there you can kind of back up and follow the contours of the first 11 chapters. And, and one thing it has to mean is that we never forget who we were prior to and apart from Jesus. For some reason, Paul never, I know what the reason is, he never wants us to forget who we were. We saw it in Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were separated, alienated, without hope, having no God in the world. Well, Romans tells us the same thing. In chapter 1, tells us we were under the oppressive and horrific weight of the wrath of God and his anger. That's Romans chapter 1. That's where we were. In chapter 2, and chapter 3 tells us that we were not intrinsically good. It says we were not intrinsically seekers of God, that we wandered our own way, that we're stained on the inside, fundamentally unclean, which is why we try to mask and hide ourselves so much from other people, because whether we acknowledge it or not, we are dirty inside. That's what he says. And to never forget that I was hostile towards him and I was considered by God an enemy because of who I was on the inside. That's who I was. That's who you were. And he never wants us to forget that. It reminds me of the um, Stephen Curtis Chapman song that says, uh, remember your chains. Don't ever forget that you were once in prison. You know, and the only thing that I really deserved is, is, is separation from everything that is beautiful and loving Separation from life itself. I mean, hell is not, there's no life in hell. Life is a good thing. There's just empty existence. But that's who I was. And apart from Jesus, that's who I'd be today. And to never forget that, because only when one keeps that in mind does the magnitude of God's grace remain immeasurable and infinite. Because what we find in the gospel, and Paul talks about in chapter 3, is that God's mercy broke through. It came screaming through. He came after us when we're still ugly and, and we were stained on the inside and unclean and trying to hide, and he came for us. That he came for us in flesh and blood, and, and instead of pressing his wrath and anger down upon us, Jesus willingly, God's own son, comes and lifts the hand and places it on him instead. And to remember, he did that for me because that's the heart of God, a God who's filled with compassion, whose mercies are new every day whose love never runs dry, never runs out, and comes after his people and will stop at nothing until he has them. That's the heart of God, a forgiving, healing heart. And then to give us life, to promise us resurrection, um, to make us co-heirs or like adopted sons and daughters that are in some way, shape, or form sharing in the inheritance of Jesus. That is unbelievable when one looks at the expanse between who I used to be and who I would be apart from Christ as to who I am now and what I one day will be with Christ. That's what's in view when he says, in view of God's mercy, everything that he is for us and has done for us because he is good and merciful and gracious. In view of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
In view of that, that means the first task and, and primary task of the Christian life is constantly to keep the immeasurable mercy of God in your, in your view. Then it makes it possible in response to offer your body as a living sacrifice because you're so blown away by mercy. What, what it reminds me of is having our first child, Deanne and I, and maybe you can relate to this, maybe you can't. But there's a sense in which, you know, you, you bring that little bundle of baby flesh home, you know, a little car seat, and, and you think to yourself, am I old enough to have one of these? That's what I thought. We looked at each other and said, well, you didn't have to fill out, you, didn't, you have to take at least a, an exam to get a license to drive a car. Here, this little person is in our care, and it's just like they just give them to you. Like, don't I need to sign something or check this out? Or don't you need to do some evaluations, psychological or background checks? No. But it's such an amazing event because it, for us, living in Chicago, two-bedroom apartment, we fixed up his little room, his little crib and changing table, all that stuff. I'm totally embarrassing my firstborn son, by the way. Um, and I remember we just like, like, pinch yourself, like, I can't believe I'm a parent. So you know what you do is you walk over and you open the door and you look in there. You know, you're just like there he is in this crib. You know, can't focus his eyes, nothing. It's just mindless little baby flesh right there, just cute as can be. And you shut the door, and it's just like you're so excited. You're hard to sleep, and so you come back, and you just look again. You just find yourself, keep looking. I can't believe I'm a parent. And there's a sense in which you're filled with such amazing gratitude and joy and a sense of awe, like, I can't believe this has happened. You just keep looking. The Christian life is about just keep looking. The mercy of God is so infinite and so beyond the scope of the human imagination. All of it coming to a crystal head in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And the task of the Christian life is just keep opening the door. I can't wait to see it again. Because behind that door is not a small room. It's so vast that not all the ink in the world could ever write it out. And just to constantly open the door and say, I can't believe... God would love me like that. Knowing who I am and my dirt inside, he loved me anyway. Came for me, took my place. And just to have that, that sense of awe and gratitude and joy just constantly renewed because you just keep opening the door. If, if the Christian life dries out, my guess is because somewhere along the way we stopped looking. In view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. I, just, I pray every day that the Lord would not allow me to commit the sin of profaning the magnitude of his mercy by treating it as commonplace or familiar. That if there's a, a great failure in the Christian life, I don't think it's because we don't do enough. I think it's because we don't look and don't remember enough. That if there's a root at the bottom of apathy and complacency in the Christian life, it's not laziness. It's that we've lost the wonder and the amazement and the awe, the overwhelming sense of gratitude that God would do such a thing for someone like me. If there's been a failure on the part of church leadership, of which I'm a part, 
It's that we've taught and preached messages that have appealed to human strength rather than unfurl the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because only when that's done does the wind blow and lift the sails of the human soul to new heights and elevations. That's why he puts it here. The first part, in view of God's mercy, let the mercy blow and then your sail will be filled and then and only then are you able to in any daily way make progress in this thing called worship of sacrificing the entirety of your life for the honor of the Lord. It's the only way. So it used to be the second part of this verse was my favorite. Now it's the first. Because it's only as we contemplate, think about, as we view and keep our eyes fixed on the magnitude of God's mercy that we find our hearts filled and we find incentive to actually live out the Christian life. Mercy is not something you move on from. It's where you dwell. In the mercy, the love, and the grace of God. And if you dwell there and you keep opening the door over and over again and asking the Lord, please let me not profane your mercy by treating it as familiar and your heart is going to explode with a sense of awe, gratitude, and joy. And that will give you strength to do the second part of the verse. Live your life consistently as a, as a sacrifice to the Lord. That's, uh, that's by the way, is, is not new. The real key to the Christian life is to focus your attention on the first part. And then you'll find the strength to live out the second part. And as I said, this isn't new. Like, in, I love to read books, and it's just, I don't know why I didn't see it 10 years ago, but it screams to me on almost every page that I read of somebody who's been deeply affected by the love of God. Here's a couple of quotes for you from people in past centuries. The first one, oddly enough, is by a Puritan in the 1700s by the name of John Owen. And this is what he writes, and I read this, and I underlined it, and I thought it just made my heart explode. And he writes... If your heart is taken up with the Father's love as the chief property of his nature, that is, is it chief, God's love, the chief property of who he is, it cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by him. This, if anything, will arouse our desire to make our eternal home with God. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? So do this, and he's telling us to do the first part of Romans 12, verse 1. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father, and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at his delightful spring of living water, and you will soon find it stream sweet and delightful. Written by a Puritan. Completely captured by the mercy and love of God. Hymn we sing, written by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross. What's he looking at? He's looking at the cross, the place of mercy. Last phrase of the last verse of his hymn. Love so amazing, so divine, demands it like it calls forth. My soul, my life, my all. The sacrifice part comes as a result of being amazed by love. 1700s. Or another one, the late John Stott of the 20th century, 2021st. Get this. There is no greater incentive to holy living. You get it? No greater incentive. Incentive. Motivation. 
There is no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of the mercies of God. That's why the table's here. Jesus wanted us to do it as often as we do it because he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember mercy. He wants us to remember the depth of his love and to never forget it. He doesn't want us to move on from this. He wants us to dwell in this. So my encouragement to all of us, of course, I want to live a life that's sacrificed to the Lord. And I pray God is moving me in that direction in greater measure. But we only get there as we dwell in mercy. And so as you, as you come this morning, don't just take it. Savor it. Remember who you were. Remember who you'd be without Jesus. And then take time to think who I am now because of Jesus as a child of God beloved, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Nothing, not sword, not famine, not life, not death, not things future can separate us from that love. That's how big it is. And just dwell here. Dwell here as you take the bread and the cup, a reminder of the cross, a reminder of mercy. Um, I just wanted to fill us this morning. But most of you are familiar how we do it here. I'm, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm just going to ask those serving communion to come forward. Or you can come forward now, either one. Worship team is going to come too. And... Um, and just come when you're ready if you're a follower of Christ. This is for the followers of Christ, obviously. And um, you're saying that I believe in this when you take it. Bread, cup, you believe in the mercy of God. Um, come and take it. You can take it back to your seat. You can um, take it with your family, pray with your family, or you can take it alone. Uh, but let's dwell on the mercy of the Lord this morning as we partake of the bread and the cup. Father, I am so grateful for who you are. Thank you for coming after us when we weren't deserving of it and just for loving us and that your love is that big and that deep and that wide and we just desire to believe it and to trust in it, to live in it, to dwell in it. So will you just empower these elements to remind us of how deep Father's love is for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.